Please turn back to that first reading in 2 Kings. But let's pray before we look at this part of 2 Kings. Our Heavenly Father, you tell us that uh, all scriptures are breathed by you and so useful for teaching us. And so we pray that you will use this uh, unlikely and uh, somewhat horrible story from the book of 2 Kings to teach us, to encourage us, to rebuke us if we need it today so that we may be thoroughly equipped to serve you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. One of the things that struck me with the death of Queen Elizabeth back a few weeks ago is how smooth the transition to King Charles has been. Straight away, Charles just took over, no fuss, no fights. And in May next year, it came out this week, he'll be coronated, is that the word? He'll be crowned king uh, and no one's arguing about it. Now, we, we just think that's normal. We just think, well, of course, Charles will just take over. He's the eldest son. Isn't that the, the way it works? The queen has died. He's the next in line. That is actually not normal, at least in terms of history. I've just been reading a history of the kings and queens of England. And let me tell you, throughout history, when kings or queens die, there is a fight. That's what happens just about every time. I think the only difference now is they don't have any power. They're constitutional marks, so no one cares as much but uh, throughout history there's politics and people suggest you know maybe this cousin should take over instead of the elder that brother should be the king rather than the heir apparent and if you read the history uh, it's amazing how often the transition is actually far from simple Uh, if we were 400 years ago one of the other princes Andrew or Edward I can tell you would be dead by now that's what would have happened. Uh, and Prince William and his sons, they'd be locked in the tower by now. Uh, Meghan would be mounting a campaign for Harry. That's, you know, she probably is anyway. But, you know, uh, that is what happened back in history. Often it ends in a bloodbath with sons being murdered and, and secret assassinations. Our story today from Two Kings is one of the worst examples of that in all of history. This is one of those horrible stories we've been seeing in Two Kings. I was going to ask you, have you been enjoying Two Kings? I have been. I've been loving it. But, but it is rather macabre, isn't it? It's rather dark. And this is one of those horrible stories where the queen tries to overthrow the kings of Judah. Now, of course, it's interesting just as history. It's just interesting in and of itself. But actually, it's much more than that. What we're going to see here is how God works in our world. And more than that, the big point is how nothing can stop God's promises being fulfilled. So let's get into it. Uh, Well, for the last few chapters, we've been focusing on Israel. So do you remember uh, after Solomon, the kingdom broke into two? Israel, the larger one in the north. Judah, the smaller kingdom in the south, centered around Jerusalem. Uh, And what we've seen is how the northern kingdom has had bad king after bad king. During the week, I went through all the kings of the northern kingdom, and there is not one good king. And just to make the point of how murderous it was, I've set it out on your outline. If you have it on your outline, actually, it'll come up on the screen as well. Thanks, Mukesh. Uh, And the reason I've put them on different lines is that's how long every family line lasted. So Jeroboam's son Nadab became the king, Nadab got killed by Basha. Basha's family took over, they lasted one, then Elus Zimri only lasted himself, never got a son on the throne. Omri's family lasted for four, and we met Jehu last week, the general Jehu, who killed Joram and took over. And Jehu is famous for being a butcher. That's basically what he was. He was a mass murderer. But, and this shows you how bad things are, Jehu is the most positively rated of all Israel's kings. That says something, doesn't it? Jehu is famous for how many people he killed, but he's the best they had. 
That tells you how bad the other ones were. See, that's because Jehu was actually anointed by God to bring judgment on the even worse family of Ahab. Uh, and he did that. Last week's passage was pretty full on. I was away on holidays, but I listened to the recording afterwards and read the passage while we were away. And it was pretty full on how he killed everyone, including, if you remember, Jezebel, the evil queen Jezebel. But as hard as all that was to read, uh, it was justice. It was justice for the way they had led God's people away from God and, and abused their position as the kings and queens of Israel. And so Jehu's greatest achievement though was he finally got rid of the worship of Baal in Israel. So that, that had been the, the horrible sin that was all from Ahab on, uh, he finally got rid of it. But even so, Jehu really was not a very nice guy uh, and things didn't go that well under him. He still allowed idolatry, other idolatry to go on. So yes, best of the kings, but that's because they were so bad. So that's Israel in the north. Now in chapter 11, we swing back down to Judah, the southern kingdom. We've got to remember, this is actually the important story. Why is that? Why is this the important story? Why is Judah, which is much, much smaller, why is it the real kingdom of God? Do you remember why? It's because of God, all of God's promises focused on Judah. Israel was still God's people. God said, I still love you. But Judah, that was where God's promises focused. It was from Judah that God's Messiah, a son of David, would come. And especially, David was the great king. And the promise was, one of his descendants would come and save God's people and establish God's king, kingdom forever. So look at 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 16, which is sort of the starting point of all of this, this promise of God, where God said to David, your house and kingdom will endure before me forever, and your throne will be established forever. Something's happened with the words there, but hopefully you can read it. Uh, your, that's David's house and kingdom, will endure before me forever. See, for Israel in the end, what did it matter if Ahab's son didn't become the king? It didn't really matter. What did it matter if General Jehu staged a coup and, and killed the king? It mattered to them, but in the scheme of things, it, it, it was as relevant to history as, as, as what happens in any country. But for Judah, this mattered because this was about how God was saving the world. So this matters. And amazingly, especially when you compare it to Israel, amazingly, David's line continued and carried on in Judah. So all these coups and fights are happening up in the north. Judah is relatively stable. So you notice, if you again look on the, on the screen or on your outline, there's one line of kings in Judah. From Solomon on, Rehoboam his son, Abijah, Asa, Jehoshaphat, Joram, down to Ahaziah. Now, I mean, most of them were pretty hopeless, uh, a couple were okay, but God's promises still stood. We were still waiting for the great king to come in the light of David, which brings us to today's story. And it's what makes today's story so massive because this was the moment where it looked like all of God's promises were going to fail. This is actually one of the most massive moments in the Old Testament. So I've called it crisis point. That's what it is. Will God's promises fail? So what happened to create the crisis? Well, Jehu, the butcher up in the north, up in Israel, creates a bit of a tidal wave that flows down into Judah. Because when he kills King Joram of Israel, the northern kingdom, poor old King Ahaziah of Judah wanders into the fight, if you like, gets caught up in it all. He gets killed as well. More than that, because Jehu was like this, he said, well, I'll kill 42 other members of your family as well. 
So suddenly there is this power vacuum in Judah at a real crisis. For the first time, it's actually a real question. Could the line of David be wiped out just like the line of Ahab had been wiped out in Israel? Could God's promises actually fail? And it just gets worse as we come to chapter 11. So come with me now. We're at chapter 11 and we're at verse 1. I've got the evil queen takes her chance. I really felt for Susan as she started the reading and this was her first verse to read out. When Athaliah, Ahaziah's mother, saw that her son was dead, she proceeded to annihilate all the royal heirs. How's that to a start to a story? What a nice lady, hey? Her, her son, the king, gets killed. So she says, I'll tell you what I'll do. I'll kill all my grandchildren and, and, and all his brothers and all his cousins. The thing you have to remember is the king would have had multiple wives. Uh, and, and so actually many of them were not related to her. Uh, now, as I say, this sounds evil to us. It sounds unthinkable. But sadly, if you read history, this is all too common. Uh, it's not abnormal. This is what people do for power. Uh, it's happened in every country on earth for thousands of years. But this was about more than power. You see, Athaliah is actually a daughter of Ahab and Jezebel. Uh, the evil king and queen of Israel, she's a, she's a daughter. They married as a political alliance. It was Jehoshaphat's great mistake allowing this to happen. The earlier good king, she is a Baal worshiper. And she hates the God of Israel. She hates the one true God. And so she hates his kings and she hates his promises. She isn't just after power. She is trying to put an end to the God of Israel and replace him with Baal. Now, this is not a very well-known story, is it? I noticed in, in Kevin's summary of what the kids are doing in kids' church in 1 Kings and 2 Kings, they're not focusing in three weeks on this chapter in kids' church. You're probably thankful. Uh, I'm sure not many of you even remember this story or remember the names. Uh, they don't write children's books about this one. It's actually, as I said before, one of the greatest moments of crisis in the Old Testament. You know how there's those, those kids' books and movies, The Grinch That Stole Christmas? You know those ones? Uh, and the idea is that the, the, the bad monster or the bad people take all the joy out of the world and unless the kids get together and stop them, Christmas will disappear forever and Santa won't bring his gifts and there'll be no happiness in the world. This lady really was putting an end to Christmas. I don't mean that metaphorically, I mean literally, because if she succeeded, Jesus would never come. If she succeeded, there would be no Emmanuel. There would be no God with us. There would be no Christ. There would be no Son of God coming into the world to save sinners. There would be no salvation for anyone. This is a massive moment. So what happens? Well, what happens is in my next heading, God works through quiet, faithful servants. And this is verses 2 to 20. See, sometimes God intercedes in history with massive miracles. Think of the Exodus. You know, where God made a people for his very own, took them out with all these miracles and all these plagues and then separated the sea. And uh, that is how sometimes God works in the world. More commonly, though, God works through quiet, unknown, but faithful people of courage. So we meet Jehosheba, and she is one of those true heroes of the faith that no one has ever heard of. Who, before we read this, had the name Jehosheba in their memory, even? Anyone? And some of you know your Bibles pretty well. But no, so here she is. She's the dead king's sister. 
She would have been from a different mother to the murdering queen. We, we learn in 2 Chronicles also she's the wife of the priest Jehoiada, who's also the other hero uh, in our story. But what a hero this lady is. She goes while the queen is murdering all the children and all the heirs. She goes and grabs the little baby son of the king. She grabs Joash and she smuggles him into the temple where she keeps him hidden for six years. You might wonder how she kept him hidden for six years. Remember, the queen was a Baal worshipper. She had no interest in the temple. Uh, it's like one of those stories from the Second World War, you know, where German people who, who were opposed to Hitler kept Jewish people hidden in, in attics and it was like the diary of Anne Frank. That's what this is like. Every day for six years, they could have been exposed. They could have been put to death. And so for six years, the evil queen rules Judah and she even sets up a temple of Baal in Jerusalem. This is one of the lowest moments in, in the history of Judah. But after seven years, so when Joash is seven years old, Jehoiada, the priest, her husband, the other hero, stages a revolution. He builds an army in the temple. It's a great story as we read it. Uh, the Karaites are talking about a foreign mercenaries, but then he gets local soldiers. He gets them all together. They use the shields and, and the spears from the time of King David that had just sort of been thrown in a room in the temple after it had been built. And when everything is ready, they stage their coronation. Look at verse 12. It says, he brought out the king's son, put the crown on him, gave him the testimony and made him king. They anointed him and clapped their hands and cried, long live the king of course queen Athaliah hears the commotion she comes out she yells out treason one of the great ironic comments of all time if you've got the crown through killing everyone else it's a bit rich to call out treason when someone else uh, is crowned the king and so she gets what she deserves they take her out of the temple and they put her to death but it's not just that the bad guy or the bad girl in this case gets what they deserve that makes this a great story uh, it's what they do next. See, Joash actually, for a time, becomes one of the good kings. Not perfect, but good. So look from verse 17. It says, Then Jehoiada, that's the priest, made a covenant between the Lord, the king, and the people, that they would be the Lord's people, and another covenant between the king and the people. It's Jehoiada, because remember, Joash is still only seven years old. But this is one of those beautiful moments for just sort of a brief time in history where God's people in the Old Testament turn back to God and do it right, where, where things go how they are meant to go. It's one of those beautiful moments where they say, enough's enough, we're going to live as God's people. We're going to live by God's word. And they actually take practical steps in response. Look at verse 18. It says, so all the people of the land went to the temple of Baal and tore it down. They broke its altars and images into pieces and they killed Matan, the priest of Baal, at the altars. We sometimes struggle with the uh, harshness of the response to the priests of Baal in these stories. We've seen it all through 1 and 2 Kings last year and this year. That's only because we don't fully comprehend how evil idolatry is. Just like we don't ever fully comprehend how evil all sin is. It is an evil thing to set up something else to be worshipped instead of the one true God of the universe. But I want to actually say this is a wonderful model of how we should respond to God's salvation. In fact, this is our first what do we take from this story point today. I've got three. The first is this is actually 
what happens here led by Jehoiada under Joash from the people of Judah a model of true repentance when we receive God's grace and mercy through Jesus the right response is radical repentance we smash the idols that we used to follow that's actually what it is to become a Christian it's to turn from idols in 1 Thessalonians 1 to turn from idols to serve the living and true God and we smash the things we used to follow and worship we put to death the ways we used to live look at Colossians chapter 3 verse 5 it says therefore put to death what belongs to your worldly nature sexual immorality impurity lust evil desire and greed which is idolatry so this is not just a great story of God keeping his promises though we'll get to that it's a great model of us for us of how we respond to God's grace and God's mercy so that's one lesson we take away from this story a model of true repentance what else do we take away two other main things I want to draw out the first is God's promises never fail and this is the main point I've stressed what a crisis point this was if this queen had got to Joash that day all of God's promises would have come to naught there would be no savior for the world humanly speaking it looked hopeless but God's promises never fail God said that his savior would come from the line of David nothing some queen could do would stop that and that is what we always need to remember nothing can shake God's promises to us God has made you wonderful promises in Christ if you are someone who trusts and follows Jesus you have been justified you are right with God declared innocent you are a part of his people he has adopted you as his child Jesus has paid the price for your sin God has promised that Jesus will return to bring in a new creation and you will be a part of that if you trust in Christ God has promised that he is establishing his church and not even hell can over overcome it these are the promises of God and sometimes we can look at our world and think wow it doesn't look like that's coming true we can look at our world and think wow it doesn't look like God is going to win and the, the, these promises are going to happen it looks like our world is winning it looks like people are rejecting Jesus and it's harder and harder to stand up for the gospel we can think we're in a time of Queen Athaliah and so we can be tempted to give in we can be tempted to compromise we can be tempted to tone down our faith this is just a reminder don't because God's promises never fail don't give in keep trusting the promises of God but that leads us to my last takeaway for us my third which is God works mainly through the quiet faithfulness of ordinary believers I said before how sometimes God interjects into the world in a massive miraculous way to fulfill his promises I talked about like at the exodus or for that matter the, the resurrection of Jesus uh, but generally God has chosen to work through the quiet faithfulness of his people sadly by next week you'll have probably forgotten Jehosheba's name again I'll stand up here and ask do you remember the name of that lady and I can tell you you'll have forgotten because I will have but she is a hero when everyone else was giving into evil she just quietly did the right thing whatever the cost 
And she didn't need a special word from the Lord to tell her to do that. Do you notice? Do you notice how there's no special words from the Lord here? It's not like, and God appeared to her and said, go and do this. Or God appeared to Jehoiada and and said, stage the coup and, and, and put the proper king on the throne. They didn't need a special word because they just did what was right from what they knew of God and what they knew of his promises. And that is how God worked to make sure his promises were fulfilled. God is working out his purposes in our world as we speak. God is fulfilling his promises. His gospel is going out to the world. People are being saved. His church is being built. And you or I might think that the way God should do that is by some miraculous large-scale conversion of the world. And he might do that every so often in history. There have been great revivals where massive numbers of people turn to Jesus. But on the whole... How has God worked through history and how will God work? God works through quiet, faithful Christians getting on with life and choosing in the decisions of life to be faithful. God works through the Christian who faithfully refuses to compromise in their workplace, whatever the cost. And that's how God triggers people to ask them, why? What's the reason for your hope? God works through the faithful Christian who offers to read the Bible with their friend and answer their questions. That's how God works. God works through the faithful Christian who gives up time each week to go over into the school and teach SRE, even though sometimes they wonder if any of the kids are listening. And the thing is, no one remembers their names. They're not written in the history books. They are the heroes of the faith. They will have crowns in glory, just like Jehosheba because God's promises never fail. So keep trusting him and get on with that quiet, faithful obedience that is the heart of the Christian faith. But now come back with me to one last part of the story. Come with me to chapter 12, only for a moment. We didn't read chapter 12. Uh, I'd love you to read it later yourself, because there are such great hopes for Joash. He reigns for 40 years. He does what is right in the Lord's sight. Well, at least there's a little caveat on that. He does it while he has Jehoiada the priest instructing him. But when Jehoiada goes, King Joash goes off the rails just like all the others. Joash never quite get around to challenging some of the wrong religious practices that have been in Judah for years. Joash never quite get around quite gets around to finishing his project to rebuild and and fix the temple He, he starts a great project to raise money and the money sits in boxes and then he has an awful moment the Arameans come and threaten to attack Jerusalem and instead of trusting God to protect his people and protect his temple Joash buys them off and he does something awful he takes all the gold that has been given to God and the temple and he gives it away to buy off their attack. Two Chronicles tells us in the end, Joash turned away from God to worship idols, just like those who were before him did. He broke that covenant he made when he became the king. And then finally, he gets assassinated by his servants. For all the good beginnings, in the end, Joash goes out with a whimper. He is the great disappointment. That's what he is. Never has there been a king of Judah who started so well, other than perhaps Solomon, and finished so badly. For all the good beginnings, he goes out with a whimper. And I just share that to finish, to make the point. Joash got to sit on the throne. 
Joash gets recorded in the history books, Joash will not be in the kingdom of heaven. Joash will be in hell. Joash will not be in the new creation. He will have no crowns in glory. The hero of this story is not the king. It's those forgotten faithful servants, Jehosheba and Jehoiada. They are the heroes because they are the ones whose faithfulness ensured that the true king and the true Messiah would come, our Lord Jesus. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you that your promises are always fulfilled. We thank you that in Christ, the true King, the Messiah has come and that in him we are justified, we are adopted as your children and we have a place in your eternal kingdom. We pray that you would help us to keep trusting whatever the circumstances in our world, that your promises will be fulfilled. And we pray that we would walk in the footsteps of these faithful servants who act rightly and trust you in all circumstances. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.